Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Moss, the Associate Vice President at Louisiana State University. Andrew is responsible for managing, encouraging, and supporting the development, disclosure, and protection of LSU's inventions and intellectual property. Andy oversees and supports LSU's technology managers in negotiating licenses and commercializing its intellectual property. Additionally, Andy supports, mentors, and advises LSU inventors and administration on the application of intellectual property and policy and relevant federal regulations. Andy received his BS in civil engineering from Brigham Young University, a MS in engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, and an LLM and JD from the University of Akron School of Law. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Andy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much again for taking part in the podcast. Let's get things started and talk a little bit about your journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and ultimately how you ended up in tech transfer and more specifically at LSU? Yeah, so I don't think anybody that is actually operating in tech transfer made a plan in their life that they wanted to be a tech transfer professional when they started their career. Um, I think everybody has sort of fallen into it in one way or another, um, whether that's through being in a PhD lab and realizing you know, that you get, you're going to get your PhD and you don't want to do what, what PhDs do, or whether you uh, went through a business and started a company and realized that you didn't want to uh, be doing that the rest of your life. Um, my background, you know, you mentioned that I have a have a two engineering degrees and ultimately two law degrees. My background in sort of entrepreneurial activities started after my uh, my master's degree in engineering. I went and worked for a large corporate engineering firm, and it was the dream job. Right, I'm coming out of grad school. Um, I I was married at the time, had one child, and you know, it was sort of everything I wanted. And I went to work for this company, and one of the partners in the firm had been there for 27 years. Wow, that's a long time. Through some politics, he was essentially forced out of the company. And I looked at it and I said, if they'll do that to somebody that's been here for 27 years, what sort of loyalty do they have to me? And I quickly realized none. And so I was, I had worked very closely with that partner. And so he and I, um, ended up starting our own company in Dallas, Texas. And it was an engineering design services company. Um, He was 30 years my senior. So he was out bringing in all the business and I was managing all the workload in the office. Over a year and a half period, we grew from two of us to 14 people. Um, He put a lot of responsibility and trust in me. So I was essentially 
responsible for signing lease agreements for our new office space, buying all the computers, getting our servers up and running, buying plotters, buying phone systems, right? Hiring those 14 individuals, right? Every time that I got stressed from my workload, I would go to my partner and I'd say, we got to hire someone else and say, okay, bring in some candidates. So, I mean, I just, I had to be a jack of all trades. And I, I actually fell in love with not just being an engineer, but being an entrepreneur at that point in time. Um, in 2008, I was actually going through the process of um, getting my engineering licensure in Texas. And I had to submit my experience in grad school and my and, and whatnot. And I ended up reading the, the essay that I had used to apply for grad school. And that essay said that I wanted to go back to school and get a PhD. And I looked around at the PhDs I knew in industry. And, you know, obviously, I recognize that lots of people listening to this podcast may have a PhD, but I decided I did not want to be in, an, in a corporate environment like that would put me in. So I still wanted to get more education. Um, an MBA was another route I, I explored, but that would ultimately just put me back in the exact same position of managing other engineers in, my, in a firm. And so the law degree actually was kind of enticing to me. Um, I did a lot of customer discovery before I went off and made the decision to go to law school and interviewed actually five um, intellectual property attorneys before I made the decision to even take the LSAT and just talk to them about the process, what they thought about it. Um, and they all encouraged me to do it. They, you know, some of them said it's, it's a tough road to, to hoe, right? It's a tough, tough road to hoe with, with a, a family and whatnot. But ultimately, it was something that I made the decision to do. My wife supported me on it. Um, we started law school in uh, 2009 with three kids. Oh, we wow. graduated law school in 2012 with four kids. <laughs> and then I ended up working at the University of Akron in their research foundation for uh, five years. So I was in the research foundation for two years while I was in law school and then three years afterwards. Um, the interesting part that sort of sucked me into the tech transfer component there was that I interned for them after my first year of law school and they gave me the federal grant and the federal grant was under the Economic Development Administration, so the EDA, and it was one of the I-6 challenges that they issued in 2010. And they didn't give me any direction. They just said, work with one of our local hospitals and write a proposal for this. And so taking a look at it, following the directions, I wrote a proposal for it. It was a $2.2 million grant to create a, a virtual proof of concept center um, in Akron focused on medical devices by linking the University of Akron and the the local hospital systems into one another um, using the expertise from Akron in their polymer science and polymer engineering to tie into the medical space, linking those two together. And I submitted it um, in July of 2010. And then I you know, forgot about it. And in September, I was back in school of 2010. I got a phone call from the office and they said, can you come up to the office right now? And I was, I was sort of caught off guard. I was studying for, for class. And I said, sure, I'll come up. So I came up and they said, there's someone from the federal government on the phone that wants to talk to you. Um, and you need to get their responses by tomorrow morning so that they can give us this $2.2 million award. Oh, my God. And nobody had ever received a federal grant this size in the tech transfer office. They had never even known that they were 
available. They thought it was just sort of a, an exercise that I could go over in the summer. Um, the fun part about that is because is that I included in the budget um, tuition remission for a graduate student and tuition um, and a stipend for a graduate student that ended up paying for my second, my third year of law school. <laughs> so uh, Very creative. That, that ultimately got me into a position where I said, you know, this is really fun. I enjoy it. I actually, I had planned on going to law school, specifically looking at patent prep and pros to be a patent attorney. Um, after I got my feet wet with the tech transfer space and I realized that it was just as fun or maybe more fun than being an intellectual property attorney, no offense to the intellectual property attorneys listening, um, <sighs> but ultimately um, that sort of got my, got my start in tech transfer. That's awesome. And so how did you get from Ohio to LSU? Um, so interestingly, that same grant that we had been awarded um, started to run out and we had extended it for a year. And, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do with federal grants. And my boss came to me and he said, you know what, um, we're not going to be able to support you anymore because the grant's running out. And it sort of caught me off guard. I said, you know what, um, I have other funds that I've brought in for other activities over the last year and a half that will support me moving forward. And it became obvious that, you know, that wasn't going to work out. And so I started looking, started looking for jobs. Um, my wife and I had actually made the decision that we were going to um, spin out a new company and I was going to go back to consulting and we were going to stay in Northeast Ohio. Um, we had an offer. This is the crazy part. We had an offer on a house in, uh, in Northeast Ohio. I had all the paperwork in place to start, a, start my own company again and start consulting. Um, I had essentially given my office you know, sort of a six month time horizon that I'd be most likely leaving. Um, and just out of, at a whim, I threw my hat in the ring for the job at LSU, um, because it fit sort of the criteria that I was looking to do in my career. And the, the dates here are important on April 4th, I received a phone call from LSU telling me that they wanted to hire me and that they were offering me the job. Now, I had been going through the interview process in February and March. Um, we were set to close on our house on April 25th. And my wife was pregnant oh, with no. our fifth child. Oh, my gosh. That was, was going to be born that night. And <sighs> I was standing in the play place of the Chick-fil-A in Northeast Ohio with my son, who was three at the time. He's now nine. Um, because I was taking him out of the house. The other kids were in school. I was taking him out of the house so my wife could rest before we went into the, the hospital at six o'clock that night. And so I came home and didn't dare tell my wife on the way to the hospital, but I felt I needed to. So I told her as we got to the hospital and um, she went into labor as we walked into the hospital because of the stress that that put on, <laughs> oh my on her, gosh. And her body. So not only did we have buying a house on our stressor list, we had a new baby on our stressor list and we had a new house on our, or a, a new job on our stressor list. Three of the most stressful things that anybody can do in their lives all stacked on top of each other. Oh my God, that's quite a story. Uh, and I, it sounds like everything worked out fine. So we're grateful for that because uh, yeah, that sounds like an awful lot to be have, have happening all at once. So my wife is a saint in helping us through this process. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would definitely say so. 
Um, and LSU's interesting. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that I thought it was just one kind of campus uh, one, or made up of just, you know, the university there in, in Baton Rouge. But it's actually a system, isn't it? Um, maybe you can tell people a little bit more about that. Yeah. So LSU is, is structured as a system. Um, there are eight um, distinct campuses in the system. Um, when you think of LSU, most people think of the main campus in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, it is the campus that hosts the football team and Ed Ogeron and the national champions um, that were recently um, crowned last year and Joe Burrow. Um, there are other campuses in Baton Rouge. We have an ag center, which is focused on agricultural sciences. We have the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, which is focused on um, obesity, diabetes, and diet um, type type research. Um, we also have Health Science Center New Orleans, which is the medical school of LSU in New Orleans, and we have Health Science Center Shreveport, which is a medical school in Shreveport. There are three um, teaching campuses that are not research intensive. Um, that's LSUS, so LSU Shreveport, LSUE, so LSU Eunice, and LSUA, which is LSU Alexandria. Wow. I, like I said, I never thought that there was actually a system for LSU. So that's really interesting. How about the main campus where you're in charge? Can you tell us a little bit about your office, how it's structured, how many people you have, how you how you divide up work and workloads and responsibilities? Yeah, so we currently have um, myself. I'm the Associate Vice President for Research over Tech Transfer, and I'm also the Director of the Office of Innovation and Technology Commercialization. Um, inside our office, we have an associate director, Robert Brown. Um, Robert Brown's background is he's a he has a biology undergrad, and then he also has a law degree. Um, working with Robert on, I'll say, the life science side of the university is Dr. Dan Felch. Dan Felch um, has a PhD in neuroscience, and he did postdoc work at Tulane. Um, and so. If I were to break down the tech sectors currently in the office, we have the life science and, you know, human applications and animal health. Um, LSU does have a vet school um, here on the main campus. So we have a lot of animal health technologies coming out of the, the vet school. On the engineering and physical science, um, I, you have myself. And then we have a new employee that we just hired, um, Dr. Boyce Clark. And um, Boyce actually has an interesting background. Is he's built a startup um, around um, hair care products called Lubricity Labs, and so we're we're actually super excited to have him on our on our team. the The way that he got into his startup is he was doing consulting and engineering, and he had a daughter that had very frizzy hair. And with the humidity in in South Louisiana, he said, "There's got to be a solution." And he went to uh, some of his you know some of the salons, and all the salon processes were six hundred or seven hundred dollars once a month to keep this, this, the frizz out of this hair. And so he ended up teaching himself the science of shampoo. Oh my gosh. And, um, and he created a company called Lubricity Labs. He still was running the company on a, on the side. Um, they still sell product. Um, the product is geared towards um, curly or frizzy hair that needs to be tamed. And he put this product in his daughter's hair. And the next day, all of his daughter's teachers sent him a note and said, what did you do to her hair? It is amazing. And that's where he realized he had something. Um, 
and he's he's a he's a great asset to our team. We also have a contract specialist and a business manager in our office. Um, Brennan Rodriguez is the business manager, and Julie Cherry is our contract specialist. And then we, at any given t- point in time, we have anywhere between five and eight um, student interns from either the law school, the business school, or just out of the College of Science or the College of Engineering that are interested in, in intellectual property. Fairly sizable group then. Yeah, definitely. And if I were to sort of wave a magic wand and say, what else would I like to see in my office? Um, the other vertical that I think we are currently not servicing very well, but we're trying to, is the hardware software space. LSU has a lot of computer science, computer engineering research and development going on. And we try to share that workload among the two verticals that we currently have. However, um, we could really benefit um, by servicing that space better with a, with dedicated personnel. Yeah, there's a lot, it seems to me, in the, the other folks and people that I've talked to from various tech transfer offices, that's a, a hot area in a lot of a lot of universities. And it sounds like you guys are no different. Yeah, and we we uh, structure things as sort of cradle to grave. So everybody in our office is a commercialization officer. And so the commercialization officer title essentially means you do anything and everything necessary to commercialize technology. <laughs> so if that means uh, executing NDAs, you execute NDAs. If that means MTAs, you do MTAs. If that means uh, patent prosecution, you do patent prosecution. If that means licensing, you do that. So we're not broken down into into activity. We're broken down into uh, tech sector. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, in that regard, can we talk a little bit about uh, if you have them numbers in terms of the number of disclosures you get, the number of patents you file on, and, and maybe some idea of how many licenses you execute and, and licensing revenue you receive? Yeah, let me uh, let me just pull up some of my data here. So speaking for the main campus, um, in 2019, which is the, the year that we finished in July of 2019, so almost a year ago, um, we had 76 invention disclosures. We executed 19 licenses. Um, we filed a total of 57 patents. Um, we were issued uh, nine patents, nine U.S. patents. Um, we had 83 active license agreements. There were 21, and, and these are sort of autumn metrics, right? I mean, these are sort of these are going to be relevant to autumn metrics. If you aren't sure when these out, that's because these are things that we reported in our report up to autumn. Um, we had 21 licenses that were generating income. Our campus royalty revenues um, or total license income was $899,000, so just under a million dollars. We ended up helping four startup companies get formed. We spent $300,000, $360,000 in legal fees. Um, And we we add a a new metric on here, which isn't truly a, a direct correlation, but I think it's actually fairly valuable, and that is... Um, the price per license, right, or per per patent. I mean, so the cost per patent filed in our office is about six thousand dollars. So wow, that's interesting. Total, that's not bad. That's not bad. Being a patent attorney myself, that's really not bad at all. I don't think. Yeah, and and ultimately, I mean, it's it's not a perfect metric. Sure. It is a metric, but it's not a perfect metric because a lot of the cost of prosecuting a patent doesn't occur in the year that you file the patent. Um, so ultimately, that's spread out. But if, if you're taking sort of a plug flow reactor approach to this, um, 
it doesn't really matter if I'm spending money in year three for prosecution of a patent that was filed in year one. If it's accounted for in year one, then it, it you know it manages out and it, it it equates out over time. So interesting. Um, speaking of patents, since you're a patent attorney and and you have a, a dual degree LLM and JD. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you guys, how your office handles disclosures and filing applications because of your background? Did you institute anything you may be a little bit different than what the university was doing before you arrived or yeah, any unique processes that you've developed over time there for vetting and filing and prosecuting applications? Yeah. So before I got here, um, there, there's actually several um, sort of circuitous routes that we got to where we are right now. Before I got here, we were using um, exclusively in-state attorneys, and that's because we are a state institution. Um, and the attorney general said you had to use in-state attorneys. Now, if you um, look up the number of um, USPTO barred attorneys in the state of Louisiana, it's a low number. <laughs> Very. Um, and there's a there's a subset that actually are in private practice. There's quite a few of them that work for corporations or entities that are not um, selling their services. So that even makes the, the opportunity even smaller. And then there was a, a subset of those that were already conflicted because they were uh, they were adverse to LSU in one way or another. And so it gave us a very small pool of patent attorneys. Now, those, those patent attorneys that did do work for us are excellent patent attorneys. Um, but we had the breadth of a of the flagship institution of of the university and we needed more breadth in patent opportunities or patent prosecution opportunities so we actually started using our research foundation in 2014 to be able to pro, um, pay for our legal bills so we would pay our research foundation our research foundation would then engage our attorneys for us and we would then be able to utilize attorneys outside the state utilize attorneys on a fixed fee basis and whatnot. Um, in 2019, the Research Foundation had some issues and we, we needed to shut the Research Foundation down with regard to tech transfer activities, which we did. And I've now been going through the process of helping educate our attorney general about intellectual property. Why, if I have a vaccine, I need to get it to the best vaccine intellectual property attorney in the country which might be more expensive than they're willing to pay, but it makes the, the most sense to protect that asset that we are, that we're managing with regards to, so that's sort of attorney use with regards to a process that we put in place. We've actually gotten pretty good at packaging materials for our attorneys so that they can give us really good pricing. Um, usually um, and from working at other institutions and also seeing um, how other institutions engage with our with attorneys, they will you know identify a disclosure, they'll identify invention, they'll say, we want to file a patent on this. And then they'll ask the attorney to start working with the inventor to document, to draft, to develop everything necessary for that patent application. Um, that causes some problems because the inventor's or the contributors, we call them, because we aren't necessarily wanting to delineate who's an inventor when they give us a disclosure. Um, the contributors think that the patent attorneys work for them. Yep. And, and that actually leads to um, attorneys getting 
called at all hours of the night for you know excessive time or consumption of their their resources without necessarily the need for that consumption of resources and so we actually run everything through our we package it all together and before we even start we send out a bid request to three separate attorneys and when we send that bid request out we give them a summary paragraph we ask them to run a conflict check for subject matter to see if they're able to even represent us on the case um, just based off of that one paragraph beyond that then we ask them for the price for a provisional and usually it's a lightly edit- edited provisional we don't do many cover sheet provisionals unless we have some sort of you know emergency timeline sure um, but we'll do a lightly edited and we ask the in- the attorney to provide either you know a list of embodiments or a list of claims whichever they're more comfortable with some attorneys don't like putting claims in provisionals which I totally understand the procedural reason why um, so they want to just put embodiments in the provisional. And then at the same time, we ask them, should nothing substantially change, what would be the cost in 12 months to convert this to a non-provisional filing? So they're given the opportunity to give us a price. It also gives us the ability to budget. Um, and then at the end of the, the, the request, we ask them what attorney is going to be working on it. What's that attorney's hourly rate? And we let them know all the details. You know, here's the attached documents. Please use page 7 through 32 of the dissertation for the beginning of your, your provisional document. Um, this other document was published on XYZ date. So therefore, we need to file before, before you know, one year after that. Or this publication is planned to be published on, you know, say, June 10th. So we need to have this filing on, on the records by June 9th. So we give them all that information. We get the three bids back. Um, we may not go with the lowest price, right? Sure. So we are actually looking at the attorney that's going to be working on the case. So, for instance, if I have an optical array switching device that's for computer technology, and one of the attorneys that's identified that's going to be prosecuting it did their PhD and postdoctoral work on optical array switches, well. Even though they might be, you know, a thousand dollars more as total price, I'm probably going to go with them over the other attorneys because of the background and the experience set that is going to make it a, m- a much better drafted application um, than somebody that sort of that might have to teach them some of the science, teach themselves some of the science as they're drafting. That's a fascinating approach. I've not heard of another office use that approach. And I think the bundling up and providing all the upfront materials and pointing the attorney. To what to use. I, I mean, I think that's amazing. And no wonder you get good pricing. And it's really helpful for us too, quite honestly, as outside counsel to get that because a lot of times, if you get just a manuscript with a uh, disclosure form that's just quickly filled out, you've got to spend a lot of time trying to tease out what the invention is. But it sounds like you guys have already pretty much bundled that up. You've done that. And you've actually reduced the amount of just just study time that the attorney's got to use. And by managing that through your office and, and taking out the inventor or the contributors, um, that also is is very helpful. Because like you said, I've been in that spot where the contributors are calling me, calling me, calling me, and it's just they're anxious or they're, you know, they want their draft and they keep thinking of things and it does run up the cost uh, pretty significantly. 
Yeah, I, I sort of, when I talk to my attorneys, I essentially tell them, look, I'm going to serve this up for you on a silver platter. And this is what I commit to you. And, you know, you need to make decisions business-wise on how you're going to price things. Um, but that's your decision, not mine. And ultimately, I'll tell you that that fixed free, fixed fee non-provisional filing that we get them to quotas on, um, sometimes, right, when I go to convert, I will send them any additional information I have, and I'll ask them. I'll say, look, we did get some additional information. Does this significantly change your quote? And so I still give them. I'm, I'm not going to hold their feet to the right. fire. I, I still give them the opportunity to adjust. Um, and they're always looking at this as sort of that long-term relationship of, you know, we want to keep you as a client. We want to keep Absolutely. working with you. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually played out pretty well. It's hard to explain this process to others and have them sort of understand how the whole thing works with the, with the time continuum. Ultimately, when it comes to sort of conversion, and this is what a lot of our, our patent attorneys are concerned about, we only convert about 50% of our provisionals. And the reason we only convert about 50% of our provisionals is because during that period of time, we put a pretty heavy onus on our faculty members and our inventors and our contributors to work with us to identify market potential, right? Identify the the opportunity uh, that this technology could be licensed. I'm going to give you some statistics. This is sort of where this whole conversation started was around the statistics. Um, we had 76 invention disclosures in 2019. In 2013, the year before I got here, we had 31 invention oh, wow. disclosures. So they've, it's grown significantly and, and your team's grown it where you're getting more disclosures in. In 2019, we had 19 licenses and options executed. In 2013, we had two. <sighs> yeah. In, 2000, in 2014, which was the year that I got here, we had three. And then it just went up to seven, to 14, to 21. And then we're, we sort of settled in at that you know, high teens. So in 2018, we had 16. And in 2019, we had 19. So at this point, I think licensing-wise, we have sort of hit a, a, a limit of, of manpower, right, in our office. So if we want to increase that, we're probably just going to have to add numbers of people to be able to process. And there's some efficiencies we're trying to eke out here and there. But ultimately, I think there's, uh, there's some uh, details that need to be worked out. Interestingly, you know, people ask this question, have you been more busy or less busy with COVID-19? And um, we have, our, our disclosure rates have gone up. Um, I think everybody's disclosure rates have gone up. Yes, that, new, that's true. Our, our new opportunities have gone down, but our actual executed licenses have gone through the roof. And the reason being is because we had a bunch of licenses sort of in the wings with companies that we were sort of just, we didn't have enough time to focus on them. And so now that we are separated from the institution and working remotely and working at home, we have time to focus on closing those deals. So like this morning, I was on a phone call negotiating a term sheet. And a couple of days ago, we executed a license that we has been sitting in the wings for eight months, right? That... We've been able to sort of pound on these to get them executed. It's interesting, though, since COVID started and everybody's been working remotely when I've been doing these podcasts, because initially I was doing them all in person and had to pivot to doing them remotely. Every single person I've talked to has, has said that their disclosures have gone up. They're getting more deals done. It's, it's very, very interesting, the consistency 
uh, in that kind of statistic with the more people I speak with. How about patent litigation? Um, you don't see it a whole lot in universities. Have you guys had any there at LSU or not really? So we actually have not um, been involved in litigation as LSU specifically. Um, we actually did have some joint inventions that were um, with the University of Minnesota um, and Cornell. And we assigned our rights, which is actually really rare for us to do, but we assigned our rights to them so that they could pursue litigation. Um, the reason we assigned our rights is because we didn't want to get sucked in and we didn't want to have to, you know, represent and get be named as, you know, one of the uh, one of the claimants in the in the suit and all that great stuff. So we ended up giving the rights away in con in a contractual obligation so that they would actually pay us if they were successful. We we still got sucked in and subpoenaed <sighs> because and this is the fun part because one of the witnesses was one of the inventors and when they asked that witness to pr produce his uh, lab notebooks that proved inventorship he said i don't have them and they said well why don't you have them and he said well lsu has them and they said well we need to get those from lsu so they subpoenaed lsu's records we ended up still having to get legal counsel to review all of our materials and you know um redact things that were attorney-client privilege before we sent them on. Um, ultimately, the case ended up settling. Um, the frustrating part is the case ended up settling for the attorney's fees. Oh, yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah, I haven't, with my guests that I've interviewed to date, there's been a couple cases of, of tech transfer offices dealing with patent litigation, but not a whole heck of a lot. But um, the cases I have heard, you know, not surprisingly, it's complicated, it's expensive, it's messy. They want to try and avoid it like you guys were trying to avoid it as, as much as possible. And I, I will say, right, I mean, Louisiana is in the South and it's a state institution in the South and it's very, very conservative. And so, I mean, I, I introduce myself in the community and I say, look, I represent LSU's intellectual property portfolio. I'm an attorney and I'm probably the most risk tolerant attorney on campus. And that means that I'm willing to do things that might be a little outside of what the rest of the university is willing to do. However, general counsel, I mean, they're the ultimate say in whether we're going to get involved in litigation and they're not willing or or uh, in a position that they want to pursue those at this point in time. Yep. Yep. Understood. Um, can you tell us a little bit about any corporate partners that you have and the role they play at tech in tech transfer at LSU? Yeah. So my parent office is the Office of Research and Economic Development. And the Office of Research and Economic Development has an office of corporate engagement. And we also have a director of economic development in that office. And I work very closely with both those groups. Um, they also work very closely with our foundation. Um, you can imagine, you know, any university has a, a large endowment that's managed by a foundation. The foundation and our Office of, of Corporate Engagement um, and our Economic Development Director work closely with our office to ensure that we're presenting this, a unified um, corporate opportunity front. And what does that mean? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why people donate to the university. And the donations 
when it comes to the philanthropic donations that come into the university, those are usually just that, philanthropic in nature. The high net worth individuals have specifically said, I have a pocket of money and I'm going to use this for philanthropy. And that philanthropy has a benefit for me. And whatever that benefit for them is, whether it's tax, whether it's feel good, whatever it is, they use that pocket of money for that philanthropic gift. What we try to do is we try to you know, build relationships with those individuals to identify, are, they, or are there other activities that they would like to engage in at the university that may come from another pocket of money, right? Sort of a, a research in- initiative, a very spe- specific goal. So for instance, high net worth individual who has a wife that might have passed away from you know, ovarian cancer or breast cancer, um, they might have a special place in their heart to, to fund research that is in that space. So that ends up going through that those offices. Um, our corporate partners, you can imagine based off of our, our research portfolio, we have a very strong engineering program. We have a very strong petroleum engineering program, a very strong chemical engineering program. We are in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, up and down the Mississippi, 210 plus um, operators of petrochemical um, plants. They are all, you know, employing LSU graduates. Those companies have linkages back to LSU. You know, the big ones you can think of, um, Chevron's, the Exxon's, um, the Conoco's. I mean, they're they're out there that they have strong relationships with LSU, and we we work very hard to uh, nurture those relationships. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your office's biggest success stories? Yeah. Um, there's a couple. The first one I'll start with is a, is a company called VeroScience. So VeroScience, um, they were developed by actually a faculty member and a, and one of their postdocs, both of which have moved on from LSU. And they were essentially focused on um, diabetic um, indicators and the dietetics associated with I'll call it the circadian rhythms of your body to make sure that you kept your blood sugar and whatnot appropriate. Um, through the through the history of that company and the license that we had executed with them, which was executed initially in 1996 and fully expired, all the patent rights fully expired in 2015. Um, through that history of time, they uh, they brought in over you know over two million dollars of royalties into the university because of their technology. So that was actually one of our one of our big success stories. Another one that's sort of um, up and coming is a, a pharmaceutical company that spun out of LSU, and they actually were a were a joint spin out between uh, the LSU Ag Center, Pennington Biomedical Research Center, and then our campus. And they spun out some technology that was developed. Um, in our vet school and then further, further isolated in Penn, at Pennington and at the Ag Center. And it was, it's an anti-cancer agent. They're currently in phase two clinical trials. They were started in Baton Rouge. They ultimately moved to MD Anderson in Houston so that they could be closer to one, their investors and also their, their uh, patient base. Um, the hope is that in the, in the coming um, years, <laughs> they are successful in, the phase three clinical trial hurdle, which will uh, place the valuation of their company at a, at, a, at a good chunk, and then they would likely get acquired. 
Great. Those are two impressive, very impressive stories or um, startups that came out. Um, how about some of your office's biggest challenges? What would you say if um, you had to articulate some of those challenges? Oh, I mean, I think they're they're all over the board, but you know, staffing is always a always a challenge. Um, convincing leadership, we need a certain level and caliber of individuals operating in our office. Um, bringing in the right people and training the right people is also is also critical. And then the other the other challenge is probably university administration. I think everybody has some of these concerns that university administration don't necessarily see the benefit, the value. Um, the details associated with technology transfer, technology commercialization, um, bringing in those those administration leaders into the knowledge and the understanding of what it is we actually do is valuable. The difficulty, and this happens at most universities, is that there's a policy in place that distributes revenue that come in under tech transfer operations, and some universities. Um, dedicate some of that funding back to the tech transfer office. Some of the some universities have it distributed across the campus into different pots of money. Um, and so the biggest issue here is that they don't see a bottom line that is beneficial to the university in a bank account for them. And so there's a lot of education that has to go into place to help them see the benefit of having these types of activities on campus, specifically. When we bring in $100 of revenue from for LSU, $40 goes to the inventors. Um, $5 goes to the president. $5 goes to our proof of concept fund. $25 goes to my parent office, so research and economic development. $17 goes to the department. $5 goes to the college. And $3 goes to the campus. So. Nowhere does the president see a big chunk of money. All the president sees is $5 right. out of 100 And the rest of it is sort of lost. It's lost in the mix. But when we bring in you know, $900,000 of revenue, or as a system, we brought in $11 million of revenue, right? the question is, well, where is all that going? And none of it's going to the bottom line of the general fund to help support the institution, which then means we sort of get pushed off to the side. And that's going to get more challenging now, isn't it? And I mean, given the stress that COVID's been putting on universities and, you know, the fact refunds for, for students for this past semester and and uh, remote learning and things like that, I'm, I'm sure it's only going to get harder in terms of trying to uh, convince them about the contributions of tech transfer. Yeah. Yep. So switching gears, um, women inventors and entrepreneurs, does LSU have any programs or any other types of activities uh, to help encourage and support and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? So we've actually taken the approach of, you know, you improve those things that you measure. And so last year we started uh, measuring along with autumn metrics, we started measuring um, gender of our, of our contributors. So we now, we now track whether, you know, a contributor is, is male or female. Um, 
and Robert Brown in our office actually works very closely with um, one of our uh, women women inventors that's been very successful, um, Dr. Mandy Lopez out of our vet school. Um, she's also the the faculty senate president, so she has a lot of a lot of touch across campus. Um, we've been working very closely with her to increase the number of women um, disclosers of inventions so that we can move those needles on women inventors. We don't have any formal recognition or award ceremony um, like some schools end up having. Um, that's something that we're currently pursuing if that's if uh, they want to do that. And speaking of Autumn, you've been an active member and a leader in Autumn for many years. Can you talk about its evolution and growth over time and, and what the organization has meant to you? Yeah, so I think Autumn was one of my first introductions into sort of formalized technology transfer. Um, I talked about that grant that I brought in. Um, that grant had some travel money associated with it, and I used some of that travel money to travel to my first Autumn meeting in 2010. Um, I had been involved in sort of the mailings and the mail lists of Autumn for a couple of years before that, but the first time I actually attended a meeting was in 2010. Um, Having, I'll say having come into tech transfer as sort of a second career, um, I showed up and I said, you know what, I want to get involved. I was involved in other professional societies and professional organizations. So I, you know, the first people I talked to, I said, how do I get involved? How do I participate? How do I get involved? And um, they all pointed me to the volunteer committee and I, I started volunteering and, and making myself known. Um, I ultimately think that Autumn has a great ability to help tech transfer professionals network and develop relationships that are going to benefit them for the rest of their lives. We're ultimately a small group of people, right? I mean, when you look at the number of autumn members, you know, 3000, um, maybe 4,000. If you, if you count the ones that alternate year after year, when they only join one every other year, when they attend the, the annual meeting, um, that's a small set of people. I mean, some high schools are larger than that in, in the U.S. And so you get to know them and you see them regularly and you get to in, engage and interact with them. And ultimately, you end up having contracts that might be signed with them or material transfer agreements that you have to execute with them or, or in a, IIAs that you have to execute with them. And that, that collegiality is, I think, what is, what is really fun about Autumn. Early on in my time at Autumn, I, uh, I started volunteering for the valuation committee because that was interesting to me. My LLM was specifically on intellectual property valuation and uh, started being involved in the valuation committee. I ultimately became the chair of the valuation committee. I was the chair for a couple of years. And then uh, this past year, I was elected to be on the board of Autumn. Yeah. And I think that networking and camaraderie and just, I, I think, um, it was something that's really great about Autumn, especially as uh, outside counsel looking in at those national meetings and just seeing the opportunity for people to connect once a year and share stories. And you can really just see the intense conversations and just the sharing, you know, you hear people sharing stories and problems and how different offices solved unique problems and challenges so it, it really is a great venue. And I think a lot of the educational programs that Autumn does for its members are, are well-received and, and also very beneficial for its membership as well. 
So let's talk about credentialing. Um, what's your thought on credentialing, things like registered technology transfer, professional, things like that? Do you think it makes a difference? Is it something you look for when hiring in your office? Yeah, so I think, um, well, if you look at my my background, you would inherently think that I believe that having letters behind my name is important. Um, <laughs> the, the fact that, you know, my, my first boss here at LSU told me to put all of the, the letters behind my name on my business card and I refused to do it. And he said, why? And I said, because I don't need all those letters to show that I can do good business deals and do good transactions. Um, so are, are credentials valuable? I think credentials are valuable. Are they important when I hire? Um, not necessarily. I do look at it as somebody, you know, if somebody has RTTP, then I know that they've either gone through the 60 hours of education or they've done sort of a big project that was influential in tech transfer. Um, when it comes to the CLP, I, I know that they've taken a test and they've passed the test and, you know, that test isn't easy. Um, and then I know that they've continued some of their continuing education requirements. Um, is that any different than like a JD or an LLM? Not not really in my mind, but when it comes to tech transfer, I think that RTTP and CLP are valuable. Um, I do look at I do look for them in my office. I have RTTP myself, and I have RTTP so I can turn to my employees and I can say, "Hey, this is something you should strive for in your life is to get these credentials so that you can show your." Um, your capabilities in the tech transfer space. Got it. Makes sense. Um, I always like to close these podcasts with asking my guests if they could have any three wishes. So I have a genie in a bottle, you know, hiding in my home office here. And uh, if you could have any three wishes granted for LSU, what would those be? Or if you don't have any specific wishes, what would your vision for LSU be? Can I wish for more wishes? <laughs> no, that's uh, that is not part of the wishing process. I'm afraid. Oh man, sorry. Um, <laughs> ultimately, I think um, there'd be a couple components. One would be the, the understanding at the university level that ecosystem building and ecosystem growth is long term. It implicates every facet of the university, but the innovation, um, the economic development arms of the university can be forefront in that activity. And so when you think of Baton Rouge, I mean, it's not the exploding tech hub of America, but there are things that it could become that could make it a strong hub for a very specific sector. Um, when I talk about economic development and spin-out companies and startups, I work very hard to make those stories meaningful for the university and those activities meaningful for the university. I had a startup company in Dallas, Texas. We were 14 people. No matter how much money another city or state offered me in TIF funding or tax rebates or tax incentives, my company was in Dallas, Texas, and I was not going to move that company across the country for some um, 
small bottom line, you know, recycle of funding. That that leads to what I call sticky jobs, right? If we can create sticky jobs in the Baton Rouge area that are linked to the university, that are linked to the technologies, they're going to stay in Baton Rouge. And that's part of the ecosystem growth that needs to be embraced at the highest level of the institution, at the highest level of the state, at the highest level of the community, so that we can get some traction there. That would probably be one of my biggest my biggest wishes is to have that, whether it's a soapbox, whether it's a communication channel, whether it's the ear of the president or the or the mayor of Baton Rouge or the economic development players in the city. That would be one of the biggest ones that I would want to I would want to play on. You still have two more wishes. That's true. I do have two more wishes. Um, <laughs> but I can't teasing. wish for more wishes. And uh, yeah. I think that one wish is going to be very consuming in all of my time. Got it. Got it. No, just teasing. Well, Andy, I can't thank you enough for all your time and insights today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, you can just reach me on my on my email address. It's andrewm at lsu.edu. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks so much again, Andy. It's been really great having this opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, I've, I've really appreciated it. And again, if anybody has any questions or would like to talk with me further about any of the things I talked about, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, we can set up a, a Zoom call given the uh, current environment and chat through some things. Excellent. Thanks so much again. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.